Good morning again. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. Our sermon text for this morning is Genesis 5, 28 to 29. But I am going to go ahead and read the chapter, Genesis 5. Before I do that, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we come to you to hear from you, to hear your voice, to receive from you. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would pour out your Spirit on us, that you would give me uh, words to say to encourage and build up your people. We pray that you would give us all ears to hear, uh, minds to understand, hearts to receive what you have to say to us uh, in your word. Help us especially to hear your gospel afresh and believe it afresh and receive it afresh, uh, that we would continually put all of our trust and our hope in your Son, our Savior, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, 
This one shall bring us for relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Well, as Scott mentioned last week, uh, we are spending Advent looking at children in the book of Genesis as those children point us forward to the Christ child. We've looked at the seed of the woman in, in Genesis 3.15 last week. Uh, we will look at Abraham's promised son Isaac and uh, the prophesied son in the line of Judah in the weeks to come. This week we're, we are going to look at Lamech's son, Noah. And what we will see is that Lamech's naming of Noah, Noah's name means rest, or sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. Lamech's naming of Noah comes out of this deep longing for something better, something more than what he was currently experiencing. Uh, traditionally, Advent is a time of, of longing, right? Advent is the time with, when many Christians look forward to Christmas and the celebration of the coming of Christ. Just as Israel looked forward to the coming of their Messiah. Of course, it reminds us as well uh, that we are still looking forward to his coming, not his first, but his second advent when Jesus will return. The questions that I want you to be thinking about as we move on this morning are this. First, where are you longing? Uh, Where do you have longing that things would be different, that things would be better That things will be joyful instead of miserable, uh, happy instead of sad, pleasing instead of painful, whole instead of broken. And second, what do you do with that longing? Uh, When you feel that tug in your soul, where do you turn? Well, for our purposes, at least, I want to define longing as, as looking beyond this life in hope. Looking beyond this life in hope. Uh, longing is a, is a forward-looking emotion, right? It's a desire for something that we do not yet have. As uh, we look at the text this morning, as we're going to dive into that, what that means, uh, by looking at four things. We're going to look at longing's counterfeit, longing's impetus, longing's focus, and longing's power. And if you turn to the back of your bulletin, you'll find the outline there. You can follow along with us. Uh, Alternatively, uh, we're going to see that we need to look beyond this life instead of looking to it. Uh, We need to look beyond this life because fundamentally it's broken. We need to look beyond this life by looking to Christ. And we are to look beyond this life for unstoppable joy. Uh, So first, longings counterfeit. Uh, Look beyond this life instead of looking to it. In what do you place your hope? Is your hope in life that, that if you only uh, keep the rules and play nice, right, you, you'll find the right spouse, you'll get the right kids, uh, you'll find the right job, and everything will turn out for you in the end? Many of us place our hope in this life. We hope in what we can be, in what we can do, in what we can accomplish, in what we can bring about. Uh, We essentially hope in ourselves and what we can do in this world. Genesis contains two stories 
uh, uh, or the stories of two men named Lamech. Uh, we just read about the one in Genesis 5. The first one's actually found in the chapter before that in Genesis 4. There's a Lamech in Genesis 4. He's in the line not of Seth, Adam's son, but of Cain. Now, if you know the story of Cain and Abel, then you can probably guess that being in Cain's line is the wrong place to be. Cain's family line begins with murder. Cain kills his brother Abel. Uh, then Cain builds a city uh, as a monument to man. He names that city after his son, Enoch. The city itself is a kind of rebellion uh, there in Genesis uh, because God had told Adam and Eve to go out and fill the earth, uh, not cluster together in these rebellious huddles. And uh, it reminds us, it kind of foreshadows for us uh, a later city in the book of Genesis, uh, a city in which was built a tower that you may be familiar with. But Lamech is the fruit of this rebellious family tree. He takes two wives in chapter 4, verse 19, which goes against the, the pattern that was laid out in Genesis 2. He then kills a man for insulting him, and he boasts about it to his wives in verse 23. Finally, he threatens anyone who would seek to right this wrong in verse 24. This Lamech in chapter 4 is a polygamous, boastful murderer. He's arrogant, uh, trusting in himself and his ability to make the world work for him. And the truth is, things seemed to work for him. Even his children seemed fairly successful, right? Being at the forefront of, of cultural progress and farming and music and technology. Lamech had fought against the troubles of life and seemed to win. And yet his fighting was destructive. It brought uh, with it the, the subjugation of women and the murder of anyone who stood in his way. You see, this is often what happens when we hope in this life. We look to, our, uh, we look to this life for happiness, and we look to our resources to make it happen, right? And so we manipulate the world into being what we want it to be. But there are costs. And so we lie and we cheat and we steal and we blame. Uh, we put others down in order to build ourselves up. Lamech, again, was a, a polygamous, boastful, vengeful, self-confident, arrogant, self-satisfied person. And this life was working for him because he, he made it work for him, right? He, he wanted pleasure. He took wives to satisfy that desire. He wanted safety. He killed a man for threatening that safety. He wanted a reputation. He boasted about his deeds. He wanted to secure his future. And so he threatened anyone who would get in his way. And this is one way of dealing with trouble, right? Make the world work for you, no matter who gets in your way. Indulge, attack, boast, threaten, right? This is the, again, it's the culmination of Cain's family line. So when trouble and pain come, right, you, you, you jerry-rig life. You, you don't take away the brokenness, right? You can't do that. So you just push it off on other people. You manipulate others to your advantage. You destroy whatever causes harm. You, you take whatever brings you happiness. You never have to feel the pain. And if you're among those who, who are, are lucky enough to come out on top in life, there's still a problem, though. Because by manipulating yourself out of pain and, and medicating yourself into happiness, you cheat yourself out of growth and real joy. You see, the, the stuff of this life ultimately cannot satisfy it, not just because the world has fallen, right? It, it, it never could satisfy because it wasn't meant to. 
God is to be our great delight. We are made to find joy in Him. And so when we pursue the stuff of this world, we miss out on joy. Sometimes we cheat ourselves in subtle kinds of ways, right? So uh, if I start to feel down about life, if the pain of life or parenting or ministry or relationships just gets too big, right, I turn to uh, expensive coffee and sugar cookies, right? Because it's a relatively cheap, uh, relatively cheap and easy pick-me-up. I almost instantly feel better, at least a little bit better. Life suddenly looks brighter with a sugar cookie in your hand, right? Who can deny that? And then I can move on and face my day. But this kind of coping mechanism short-circuits sanctification. If I'm experiencing pain and trouble, there's a reason. And running from pain allows me to ignore the brokenness of life and live in a fantasy world that everything's okay. But really, we, we need to feel that pain. It's part of life in a broken world. We need to acknowledge the brokenness of this world and take that pain to God. When we just short-circuit it or run away from it, we don't take it to Jesus. This is longing's counterfeit, right? When we look to this life and pursue the things of this life instead of looking beyond it. What about longing's impetus? We must look beyond this life because really, fundamentally, it is broken. It's true that, that we were never meant to be satisfied with the things of this age, but we're reminded of that starkly when we see how broken the things of this age are. Uh, Noah's daddy, Lamech, in Genesis 5, knows that life doesn't work. He says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. That's verse 29. See, first, he, he, this Lamech recognizes the curse, right? Here, here's the curse. He, he's he's uh, referring us back to Genesis 3. And here's the curse as God gave it in Genesis 3, 17 to 19. And to Adam, God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Notice uh, some of the elements of that curse, right? The ground is cursed, which meant that bringing forth food would be laborious, right? Thorns and thistles would come up where there should be fruit and vegetables. And in this battle with the ground to be productive, ultimately the ground would win, right? By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the curse brings both struggle and futility. Man's struggle for survival ends in perishing. Our struggle for life ends in death. Lamech knows that the ground has been cursed. He knows this means painful toil and struggle. He knows it's unavoidable. He can't marry or fight or boast his way out of it. Nothing he can do will bring relief. Right? No, no sugar cookie will make him feel better. No band-aid will take away his problems. And yet it's bigger than Lamech, isn't it? And the, the whole genealogy of Genesis 5 is set up to emphasize the culmination of God's curse, 
death. You know, people often, as they read this chapter, chapter, they get caught up in the number of years that people lived between Adam and Noah. But actually, how long they lived is not the point. The point is that they died. That's the, the, the abnormality in Genesis chapter 5. Man was not created to die. He was created to live. And so we read, Adam lived 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 905 years, and he died. Kenan lived 910 years, and he died. Jared lived 962 years, and he died. Methuselah lived 969 years, and he died. Lamech lived 777 years, and he died. God said, in the day that you eat of the forbidden fruit, you will surely die, and death has come. It is now a defining factor in human existence. We experience it daily, every generation. Where do you feel it? Where do you know the brokenness of this age? Do you admit it to yourself? Don't seek to skirt around it, right? Don't, don't pretend it's not real. Don't indulge yourself until the pain goes away. Right? Is, is death a topic that you really would rather just avoid? Then can I say that that's probably the very place that you need to go and learn to rest in Jesus there. What you need to do, right, what we need to do is long, right? Long for things to be different. Long for God to step in and make things right, which is precisely what Lamech did, uh, which brings us to our third point, longing's focus, looking beyond this life by looking to Christ. When things go wrong, where do you look? Who or what do you look to in order to make things right? Or even just to make them feel right, if only for a time. Lamech's hope was in God's promise. It's subtle, but it's there. Uh, we, we know his mind was on the curse, right? He specifically mentions God's curse on the ground. He says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. But then he says, this one shall bring us relief. Why this one? I mean, maybe he's just excited about his newborn son, but why would he think that Noah, or, or anybody for that matter, would bring relief from the curse? Well, because God had said so. Right? God had promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And the natural conclusion, which Lamech apparently drew, was that once the serpent was crushed, the curse would be removed. It seems that Lamech maybe thought that his son would be the serpent crusher, the one who was going to take all the pain away the one who was going to make things right. Now, God did use Noah mightily right, to save humanity from the curse. Uh, apart from Noah, the whole human race would have succumbed to the curse and perished in the flood. But as you know, human rebellion did not end with Noah. Noah built a vineyard after the flood, which may actually be a sign of his overcoming the curse of the ground. Noah brought forth grapes, not thorns and thistles. But Noah got drunk one day, and he lay naked in his tent, and his son Ham saw his nakedness. And regardless of what made that incident so bad, it was told to us so that we know that sin continues. Just as Adam and Eve ate from the fruit and suddenly knew that they were naked, Noah drank of the vine, and his son saw his nakedness. 
But really, sin's continued presence, right, shouldn't have been surprising. Before the flood, uh, God sees of man that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's in Genesis chapter 6 there at the beginning. That's about the most complete statement of human depravity found in Scripture. Every intention, not some, of his internal thoughts, not just his external actions, is only evil, not just partially evil, continually, not just some of the time. And yet Noah changed all that, right? Uh, Noah builds a boat. He gets in the boat. He survives the flood. He gets off the boat. He offers a sacrifice to God. In Genesis 8.21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The point point is nothing has changed in the heart of man. The flood could cleanse the ground, but it could not cleanse the heart. Someone greater than Noah is needed. And this, of course, is, is the work of Jesus. He comes not simply to save us from temporal judgment or cleanse the ground. He comes to save us from eternal judgment and cleanse our hearts. Noah offered a sacrifice after the watery judgment. Uh, Jesus offers the sacrifice of himself. And in so doing, he takes the eternal judgment of God. Jesus is the child who brings relief and saves us from the curse of the Father. And Jesus brings relief, really, in a number of ways, but at least three. First, he brings relief from the guilt of our sin. You and I, in ourselves, we stand guilty. And God saw uh, by nature that every intent of the thoughts of our heart is only evil continually. That's a, a stark judgment, but it's an honest one. We could get into the the nuances of that and and how sometimes we do good things, but with evil motives and the subtleties of sin and so on. But the judgment remains. We stand guilty. The work of our hands cannot bring relief from that guilt. No matter what we do, no matter how much Bible we read, no matter how many times we go to church, no matter how often we are nice to those around us, our guilt remains. In fact, we're only deepening our guilt if we are covering it over with a religious veneer and hiding it under some human-powered morality. Jesus, however, comes not, not hiding his sin because he had none, and yet he identifies with ours. He received John's baptism of repentance, not because he needed repentance, but to identify with us in our need. He then went to the cross bearing guilt, Did you notice that it was because of Noah's sacrifice that God promised never to again curse the ground? But now someone greater than Noah is here, bringing a better sacrifice. As Hebrews tells us, right, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. But our sin has been removed by the blood of Christ. And so we can come to God with honesty, broken over our sin and guilt, uncovering the hidden recesses of our hearts to Him. And as we do, we find relief, knowing that Jesus has borne our guilt and that we are forgiven in him. Second, Jesus comes to relieve us from the power of sin. Sin is enslaving. It controls. It dominates. By nature, we have ruling desires, every intention of the thoughts of our hearts. Jesus comes to free us from this slavery, to bring us relief. Much like God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt, so God in Christ frees us from slavery to sin. 
He, he breaks the power of reigning sin, Wesley wrote, and sets the prisoner free. And he did this by coming under the power of sin on the cross. By becoming sin, the Bible says, and putting it to death in his body and then rising victorious. Since power has now been broken. This is something Noah could not do, right? God's epithet on the human race was the same before and after the flood. The intention of man's heart is evil. When we turn to Christ in our weakness, he frees us from reigning sin and fills us with the power of his spirit so that as we walk in weakness, we conquer. We are enabled to walk in newness of life. We are enabled to do uh, what by nature we could not do. We are enabled to live in obedience to our Father as we daily depend on his power. Finally, Jesus relieves us from the curse of sin. Right? Noah, Noah could offer sacrifices, though only of bulls and goats. Noah couldn't touch the heart. Noah did save humanity from death, a temporal death at least. But eventually he died, and his sons died, and his sons' sons died, and we die up to this day. Noah could not remove the curse. We continue to fight against death daily. I mean, doctors and diets, health programs and gym memberships, right? We'll do anything, spend anything in order to be free from the curse of death. To fight it off for just a, a little bit longer. But we all know it's in inevitable. Right? Again, Jesus came. He identified with us. He became sin for us. He bore the curse for us. He died for us. He was buried for us. But then, because of his righteousness, he rose for us, right? Breaking the power of sin, guilt, and the curse. In his resurrection, sin's power was broken. Sin's curse was removed. And when we are united to Jesus, sin's guilt is removed for us. Sin's power is broken in us. Sin's curse is satisfied and done away with. And yet maybe, right, you still struggle with guilt. Perhaps sin's power seems very present some days. And death, well, death is on the horizon for all of us. And so if Jesus, Jesus has really done away with that, what does all this mean, right? Is, is his death of no effect? Was all his work in vain? Well, of course, not, not at all, right? Uh, uh, maybe you do still struggle with guilt. But we need to make a distinction between subjective guilt and objective guilt, uh, between guilty feelings and a guilty verdict. Jesus has removed our objective guilt. He has reversed our guilty verdict. God now sees us as righteous in his son. And when you face those guilty feelings, right, you can remind yourself that your guilt has been removed. Rest in the finished work of Jesus. Remember that, that guilty feelings are not the same as a guilty verdict. Right? God sees you as righteous in his son by faith in him. Maybe you still struggle with the power of sin. Understand that sin's reign has been broken in your life. If you have trusted in Jesus, sin's power has been broken. But it's true, indwelling sin remains and will remain until the return of Jesus. Right? Sin is like a, a conquered insurgent army that though the war is over, skirmishes continue to flare up here and there. And the battle will continue until Christ returns and indwelling sin is no more. Maybe you still live in the fear of death. Death is coming and you feel it. 
It's coming for you. It's coming for your loved ones. But Paul says death has lost its sting. Death may be coming, but it's lost its power, right? Jesus rose from the dead. The, the promise of the gospel is that we too will rise from the dead at Jesus' return. Death does not have the final word. We live in between the first and the second advent of Jesus. And in Jesus' cross and resurrection, since guilt has been removed, since power has been broken, since curse has been done away with. Of course, in our experience, in the moment, well, since guilt has been removed in the past, since power has been but is being broken daily as we walk in the Spirit, and since curse will one day be done away with in the future when Jesus returns and we rise from the dead. So we've looked at Jesus at longings counterfeit. We've seen that we need to look beyond this life instead of looking to it. Uh, longings impetus, we need to look beyond this life because fundamentally it's broken. Longings focus, we need to look beyond this life by looking to Christ, the one who conquered death and rose again, who brings victory through his cross and resurrection. And now, uh, number four, we'll briefly look at longings power. Look beyond this life as a source of unstoppable joy. Uh, we, we tend to think that joy comes as circumstances get better. Uh, if I'm in pain, I experience sadness. If the pain would only go away, then I can experience happiness. The problem with this way of thinking is it relegates most people to a joyless life. Or at best, a life of, of intermittent joy. We need a joy that does not depend on the shifting sands of circumstances. Psalm 23, verse 4, which is probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I only say that because I keep coming back to it. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, that word comfort there is uh, the same word in our text in Genesis chapter 5. It's the word relief, comfort. Where does the psalmist find relief? Not by getting out of the valley, but in the midst of it. You see, the, the counterintuitive teaching of Scripture on joy is that joy is found in those times of trouble. That's where God meets with us. Now, Hebrews tells us that, that for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. See, Jesus knew what was coming in the future, and that changed how he faced the present. And, and this is true for us, right? As we face trouble, we hope in the resurrection, as we hope, we find a source of joy, right? The, the joy of anticipation that cannot be taken from us because no matter what this life throws at us, that hope remains. And we should cultivate in ourselves this joy of anticipation, right? The joy of Jesus' return, the, the joy of all things made new. That one day God's going to put an end to all this and he's going to step in and make things right. And that should bring us joy, Greater joy than we have when we're anticipating Christmas morning, when we get to open presents. And that's great, and that's good, but think about what God has in store for us. Think about what we are anticipating. A new creation, all things made new. And yet the joy of anticipation is only part of our joy. Uh, looking beyond this life in hope means not only looking forward to what is to come, but also looking outward 
to what is presently, right now. You see, as the psalmist says, we do not fear when we're in the valley because God is with us right now. Jesus promises to be with us always. Our good shepherd is with us. His rod and his staff to comfort us through, through both gentle discipline and fierce protection. Our God is with us. And so even as we long for Jesus to do something in the future, we turn to him in the present and we find comfort and rest in him. Not comfort and rest in this life, but comfort and rest in the midst of this life in Jesus. Which means we can have joy in Jesus' presence now and joy in Jesus' promises which are to come. Neither of which can the world take from us. Whatever might come, those things cannot be taken. And so we must say that, uh, of course, that this joy, this joy doesn't make us apathetic to whatever might come. It doesn't make us indifferent to the present age. Uh, to the contrary, it enables us to face the struggles without being crushed by them. Biblical joy doesn't lead to, to self-satisfied complacency, but joyous engagement in the things of this life. An engagement not tainted with, with fear and neediness. Right? We, we, don't, we don't engage having the thought that, that I need this thing in order to be happy and whole, or unless this goes my way, my life will be empty. Or without this person or this job or this thing, life will no longer be worth living. Right? That's engaging with the world uh, in fear and a sense of neediness and want. Rather, we engage as, as people who know where to quench our thirst. Who have a source of joy that this moment cannot touch. Which means we can actually engage in real love. Right? Joy is what enables love. If I'm always worried about getting for me... I will always be hindered in my giving to you. But as we find joy in Jesus' presence and promises, we are enabled to love unhindered. May it be so for us as a church, right, that, that joy in him would bear the fruit of love in us. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would give us this kind of unshakable joy in what you have done for us in your Son, Jesus. A joy in, in his presence with us now, a joy in the promises that are to come. Father, we pray that this joy would fill us and shape us and mold us and free us. Free us from fear. Free us from the sense of want. That we would know fullness in your Son. And that whenever we hunger and thirst we would simply turn to him again and be filled and refreshed in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.